Welcome to the Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of MixArtist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk podcast, episode 46. Welcome back to another episode of the Production Talk podcast. At the beginning of this episode, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the country that this following interview is recorded on, and the Arakal people of the Bundjalung Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Let me welcome Eric. Thank you for being with me here today on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jan. I'm so glad we could make that work. We've known each other for a long time. And then over the last couple of years, we haven't seen each other enough. And then recently we reconnected. And it's, it's great to see your face again. <laughs> Likewise. I mean, yeah. you know, it has been a crazy couple years, eh? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. How did you get through um, the COVID years? Um surprisingly good like the first three months uh i think like the whole world uh, mm. was you know going oh geez this is uh you know you get anxious you you're worried you're not sure what's happening but um you know we're, we're lucky to be in this country and mm. in this part of the country too i mean you know we, we were pretty sheltered from it um in terms of the direct impact but obviously everything else work life in general uh mm. pretty nuts but yeah once once we sort of got over that little um bump i think you know we settled in and, and i actually enjoyed being home with the family you know mm. yeah <laughs> so you know being on tour a lot prior to 2020 um It was a big change. Extra family time is always welcome, of course. Um, how, how do you manage all your work and being a dad as well? Is, is that challenging at times? Um, always. Always, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, mm. you know, uh, <clears throat> it's like trying to be present with my family, so really having hard cut-off times for my work, uh, especially when you're working from home. And, mm. and uh, you know, it's very easy to sneak away and just, you know, Uh, jump on a mix for another yeah. couple of hours, and then mm. so yeah, trying to trying to set some boundaries and and uh, make sure I am present, you know, to to be there for them, you know. Good. Why don't you just tell us a little bit more about your background? You're a musician yourself. Do you still find time to to play occasionally? Um, yeah, I do for for my own sake, and sometimes from a com compositional point of view, I like uh, writing. And still use guitar and bass for most of uh, my writing. Um, but yeah, so traditionally a guitarist um, did everything from classical to reggae to mm. you know whatever in between Latin music and whatnot. So yeah. Okay. C can you talk about the bands you've been involved with? The first, uh, well, been a few sort of mediocre cover bands in the, in the early days, but. Uh, <laughs> But then my, my uh, I guess, uh, biggest band that I was in, uh, or which I started, was called Rustawookie in Sydney, uh, eight-piece 
sort of a reggae slash world music band. Um, yes, bit of a funny name. And at the time, we, we just didn't really take ourselves very seriously. But then things started to happen and then we're like, oh, all of a sudden we're on festival stages and playing mm. larger venues and touring around the country. So, yeah, it was, it was a nice. good fun time. Okay. And... Then over the course of your career, you became more and more of a producer and engineer. And is it fair to say that it has turned around a bit more, that you're nowadays more of a producer and engineer than a musician? Is oh, that right? 100%. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I made that transition, I guess, after, you know, the band sort of broke up and uh, I went overseas, came back, you, you know, you reassess things. But the album that we put out, uh, we worked with a fantastic producer called Tony Buchan, who's now based in Los Angeles and still producing the, uh, some amazing records over there. Um, he kind of took me under the wing uh, and sort of, you know, I was very keen where everyone else went home after they did their takes or if we were editing or mixing or any of those, I was just there on his shadowing him the whole time. And he was... Uh, good enough to <laughs> be patient with me and, and mm. allowed me to ask questions and, you know. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was my first, I guess, real taste of jumping in on the production side of things and really um, just being absorbed by it, you know, and just loving the whole process, to be honest. And uh, how old were you when that happened? Um, I was about, was that 2000? 2004, so well, 16 years ago. It's about 23 mm. years old, 22, 23. So I've been playing by that stage yeah. as a musician for eight years already. Okay. So like uh, performing on stages, should, should I say. But, um, yeah, after eight years of being a musician, I, mm. almost, I made that transition, I guess. Okay. And nowadays you do a lot of live sound uh, or... Well, I guess COVID threw a bit of a yeah. spanner in the works there, but <clears throat> well, yeah. Last last weekend, I was yeah. in Darwin actually uh, for a festival with a band called Dune Rats, cool. uh, doing um, uh, monitors, in-ear monitors, and um, but I'm actually sort of uh, slowly pulling away from that because I guess yeah, once again, COVID gave me the opportunity to stay home and work, and I mm. thought. I kind of rekindled some of those relationships I had before because I was very active in, in the studio prior um, and what led me into, I guess, live sound was the back of an album that I worked with a certain artist and then they said, hey, can you mm. come on the road with us? And, you know, everything sort of snowballs from there and next thing yeah. you know you're you're in, you know, the other side of the uh, world and <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> doing a tour and you're going, oh, okay, how do I get here? But, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun and it was a great learning experience mm. and I did it for a few years and I'm still doing it but I am sort of scaling back that side of my my business. I want to focus more yeah. uh, back in the studio and, and mixing. Yeah, oh, I see. Um, if I may just stick with the live sound for a second. So you, you said that you uh, mix some monitors. So um, I think mixing monitors for, for the stage is probably the harder job of the two in contrast to front of house in some situations, I guess. And uh, if we then look at the complexity, um, you've worked with the Melbourne Scar Orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> um, can it get any more challenging than that? You know, how, how many musicians are in that band? It can, it can north of 20? Yeah, north of 20. It can range anywhere between, I think the, the, the minimum amount that they claim 
that can still be classified as an orchestra. I think is 18. Oh, okay. Uh, but, yeah, it goes up to I think the biggest show I did with Melbourne Scar was like 34, 35 musicians on stage. Wow. Um, so they just scale up, you know, every section essentially. Mm. <laughs> and, and how many uh, different fallback sounds did you have to provide for that? Um, that one I go between 10 and 12 mixes. Um, so... Uh, you know, you, you sort of split the mixes in sections and then any uh, solo artist or, or say the, uh, the lead uh, horn player or reed player of that section generally gets their own mm. monitor mix and obviously the vocalists get their own monitor mix. Um, but then, yeah, side fill would be 11 and 12. <laughs> um, and then that way I guess we can just give them a general vibe on stage but nothing too crazy because you know it's then it's punishing for the front of house engineer mm. to try and manage that so yeah, yeah. well well look um, i've seen that bad many times and uh, it's quite unbelievable to you know manage that many speakers on stage and musicians with all kinds of different demands so to me this seems to be the most challenging job i can imagine in live sound It keeps you on your toes, mm. that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So when you do gigs like, you know, the gig in Darwin, now, um, the June Rats, how many musicians have you got there? Is that four, four pieces? So, so go from 30 to yeah. three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's yeah, a three it's piece. Three. So three. drums, bass and guitar. Each one with their own fold back. So that, that must be like a cruisy gig for you, I guess. Yeah, and to be honest, mm. uh, the fold back are just the mm. backup. They're on in-ears. So, yeah, right. you know, you, feedback's no longer a real mm. issue. Um, mm. And it's mainly just a bit of kick and snare going through the wedges just to give them a little bit of... Uh, substance. Some yeah. substance on stage mm. so that it doesn't feel light. Um, and a bit through the side fills too, mm. if it's a festival, because they're, yeah. it's usually a larger stage. And... I know that a lot of musicians struggle with um, in-ears at first uh, because it sounds so very different to what they're used to. Um, how, do you, how do you get musicians comfortable in, in, with their in-ears? Um, I guess, I mean, there's, there's different aspects, but, I mean, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the musicians that I've worked with, I, I guess they've been uh, very well trained in that area. I guess they've, they've, they've already sort of done the hard yards. Um, But the few that I have worked with where it's very new to them, um, you know, using ambience mics to sort of bleed a little bit of the, mm. the space around them makes them feel a little bit more comfortable. And during that transition, generally we still keep the monitor mix pretty much, you know, going. And so if they want yep. to pop an ear out, they can still have a monitor. So that's kind of... You know, and then eventually you sort of wean them off. You wean <laughs> them off. <laughs> wean them off the monitor. Like a slow crossfade. That's it. <laughs> from one to the other. But, um, you okay. know, once, once mm. they realize the benefits, and, and mm. that's, you know, there's so many benefits with any monitors. Um, also doing front of house engineer, engineering, if I have a band on stage that are on any monitors, you have so much more control for the audience mix, you yeah. know. And mm. um, Can you explain why? Well, the, the least amount of bleed on stage, the better, you know. If mm. you keep a stage quiet, you've got way more control with your mics and uh, you can control the dynamic range a lot more and um, not so much spill coming off stage, you know. Generally, mm. generally, um, you know, these, these good bands that know how to do it and, and want the best experience for their audience will 
you know, even their guitar amplifiers are, are quite low on stage, you know. We just, that's why we have a mic in front of it, you know, and sometimes mm. a, a Palmer DI coming out of the back of the head too just yeah. to get the DI uh, head signal. Um, or some bands go completely digital and they use Kemper um, mm. uh, amps, uh, amp simulators. So, yeah, all those things actually really embellish the show for the audience, for the for the front of house mix. Um, it just makes a world of a difference keeping that yeah, stage right. volume mm. down. Okay. So, in other words, you can compress the vocals a bit harder without getting all the negatives of more guitar spill and, you know, cymbals and all the wash you get. 100%, yeah. Yeah, right. And that yeah. makes a show pretty much cleaner and punchier and more transparent. Yeah, transparent, more three-dimensional, mm. I guess, you know, because mm. you can get a bit more separation too, yeah. um, which is good. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. And you mentioned that you also set up audience microphones to feed it into the... Um, into the in-ears. Yep. Tell us more about that. Huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, it's a very common practice and, and generally, especially at festivals um, these days, they'll have the house techs will have them set up and you just patch in to theirs, you know, unless your artist specifically wants a certain type of microphone, um, whether they be shotguns or small diaphragm condensers. But, yeah, it's just to give them a bit of uh, buzz when... In between songs, I'll I'll have the uh, ambient mics on audience mics on a VCA and just push it up into everyone's ears, you know, mm. or a call and response um, that you know the, the they want to hear the crowd respond a bit more. And just, yeah, I'm just writing that VCA fader to to give them that. Um, so generally during the show, I, I have a maybe a small blend of it, or sometimes none at all, depending on what you know how focused they want to be in the mm. in the song. Um, because some of those shotgun mics, you can literally hear someone having a conversation and it just throws the artist. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, someone right. in the front rows, you mm. know, going, oh, you know, da, 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 da. and then yeah, it's like right. you can actually hear the conversation. It's mm. incredible how much they can pick up. Um, and, yeah, I mean, not that I ever have it very loud to start with, but, yeah, it does throw them off if they feel like, Yeah, hey, it can be irritating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see, I see, of course. Uh, who knows, they might even be talking about the band. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, right. So basically what you try to get with those mics is more the, the overall sound of the venue. Um, yeah. Yeah, and crowd reactions. Mm, crowd and reaction, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I find um, another trick is uh, a lot of the musicians on stage like a little bit of overheads, you know, yeah. from the drums, and that mm. kind of gives them a similar feel on yeah, stage you know bit of space yeah yeah so and being panned left and right having stereo mm. mixes means that they do have a sense of space around them so yeah yes i can see that yeah and it's it's amazing because they can run around the stage and they carry their sound with them yeah so they don't need to stick to their place on stage where they hear themselves well if they run away they can still That's hear right, them, yeah. climb Sup up uh, super consistent yeah yeah cool <laughs> nice nice Okay, and uh, you've also worked a lot in studios. Yeah. So um, do I remember correctly that you did do some work at uh, 301 at some stage? Yeah, I, um, in Byron, before they shut down there, um, I did a record with uh, Kingfisher from Brisbane um, as, as a recording engineer working with uh, producer Jake Savona. Um, at the time, and yeah, that was that was great to uh, have the opportunity to work on that old Neve beautiful festival board there um, before it got taken away in 
Mm. And we went to Sydney, I believe, to Alexandria. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, it was a great little, um, you know, I mean, let's face it, we, you know, we don't necessarily need a Neve board to get a good recording, but mm. boy, it's fun to use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the tones, oh. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I can relate to that, yeah. And uh, you worked with uh, Jake, you know, who was on the last episode of this podcast, um, more than that. So uh, tell us more about the other adventures. Well, funnily enough, during that, mm -hmm. that recording with Kingfisher is when Jake uh, found out that he received a, a grant to, to do this recording project and, uh, and he was telling us about it in the studio during a break. Um, and so when he was talking about the ideas about, you know, going to Cuba and taking some Jamaican musicians and, and all of a sudden I'm just standing there going, what? This sounds incredible. You've got mm. to take me. I speak <laughs> Spanish. I know Latin music. I know Cuban music. I know uh, reggae. I know Jamaican culture. Mate, I'm your man. As a joke. Uh, <laughs> and he just, you know, laughed it off and, yep, no worries. And then uh, two or three weeks after that recording project, I get a call from him and he says, hey, um, so do you want to come to Cuba? And I'm like, you sure are you are you for real and he's like yeah man i think i think it'd be great you know and just be great to have someone i can trust and who can communicate to both uh the cuban musicians and the jamaican musicians and not only just as a translator but someone knows mm. technically what is required and etc so next thing you know uh my ticket's booked to go to Jamaica first so we went to Jamaica to do a bit of pre-production and um and then we got all the musicians together Sly and Robbie uh guitarist called Bopi uh and uh and some younger sort of up-and-coming Jamaican artists at the time got on a plane and flew to Havana Cuba and the project you know We flew from Kingston to Havana uh, and the project's obviously called Havana Meets Kingston. So, yeah, very apt name for, for what we were doing. Um, but, yeah, and then we spent uh, just over a week at Egram Studios in, in Cuba, which is the same studio where Buena Vista Social Club was recorded and Rai Kuda's done many projects there, I believe, uh, since then. Um, And, uh, yeah, an amazing space. I mean, it mm. is old. It is a bit run down. Um, it does have that feeling of, um, you know, Cuba not having access to all the resources that they used to, um, you know, since the embargo in the 50s. But, uh, but they definitely make do, you know, and, and mm. the music is what counts, I guess, you know. Tell us more about that studio. You know, what does it look like? How big is it? How many rooms have they got? So it's um, picture it as like a large wooden hall almost. Uh, with the ceilings approximately uh, six and a half to seven meters high, so quite high. All the walls have wooden diffusers like everywhere. So it's just mm. wooden floorboards, wooden diffusions. There's not one. Uh, bit of absorption in that room whatsoever it's just all diffusion but the wood okay. the wood is so nice you can even smell it it's almost like you know you can smell the age of the the timber in there um and the creaky floorboards <laughs> which weren't so great during a session or a take but you know you just uh you just work around that um 
but they'd have three, they had three booths towards the back of the room, which could fit a drum kit, but very, very tightly. Yeah, so, so they had three booths towards the back of the room and yeah, pretty small, maybe oh, three by three roughly, mm. um, if that. Um, so yeah, we use those for isolation booths, but I had to come up with a plan pretty quickly in terms of how to manage the the session and the recordings. And, you know, from my experience with, with um, reggae and, and um, dub music, you know, it's a little bit like my headspace goes towards militant, dry, tough, tight sounding, you mm. know, not very roomy at all. You know, mm. it's, it's, yeah, sure, you get a bit of spill here or there, but the room has to be less of a feature, you know. Yeah. Whereas Cuban music, on the other hand, the room is is the the key to, to mm. making that percussion and those horns and all those other and even the Steinway piano that was in the main room, you know, room was a key to that sound, right, to the, what I hear on a lot of those records that Rai Kuda did with uh, Buena Vista Social Club, for example. And so, so I just treated that as my goal is like okay get the jamaicans in those in the back room and uh so i had sly in one of those booths i had bongo herman the percussionist in another booth and uh and then i had another percussion set up in one of the other rooms we tried putting the guitar amp in there uh but then we were kind of short so we we just went di on the guitar and decided Mm. to reamp later um because in the main room we had all the percussion congas, timbales, yeah. the Cuban drum kit, the Steinway piano. Now, all of these elements weren't always playing at the same time, of course, um, but, yeah, we were just trying to minimise, um, mm. you know, having a lot of that spill. But a lot of the percussion elements were all live with all that spill happening and, man, I have to give it to those Cuban musicians. They're amazing. They, You listen to it and, and it just it turns into glue straight away. Like it just doesn't need much at all like mm. once it's tracked it's done sort of thing um, <laughs> which is crazy and the room sounds great you know um so it works really well with percussive elements and uh yeah and then same with the steinway piano um just amazing i, I just had a pair of uh neumann uh what were they u89s um over the piano itself just Lovely. with, a, with yeah. the lid open and then the room mic was a u87 we had I mean, we had everything. They had four U47 FETs uh, available. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. Mm. And they were from the 50s. Like, so mm. I think it was, a you know, stuff that was left over after the, mm. uh, um, you know, uh, revolution. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and same with the pianos. Like, they just had amazing access to, to pianos, which I think they, from what I was told they were just taken out of a lot of those uh, really luxurious hotels after the revolution and they distributed those pianos to the people, you know, like into yeah, studios right. and music schools and things like that. So so everyone could learn on a Steinway if they wanted to, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty incredible. Um, amazing. There's a lot of history. Yeah, yeah amazing history there. It's, mm. It is surreal. Like, you know, you like everything... You would have seen, of course, is all the old cars and 
Um, the centre of Havana is absolutely beautiful with these amazing opulent, um, you know, architectural buildings. You know, they're amazing. Mm. They have, you can tell there was a lot of money going through that place at once upon a time. And obviously now it's a bit rough around the edges because things have uh, deteriorated, um, but it still has that historic opulence from that mm. bygone era, you know, which they still keep alive with uh, the old cars and, and just, yeah, keeping that culture alive. It's amazing. And uh, how many inputs were you uh, recording at the same time approximately? Um, I was limited to 24 inputs. Um, they had a old 192IO. They had a No2R which was quite faulty, uh, and I had two Focusrite Octoprees, the Silverface, really older ones without the dynamics, um, very scratchy pots. So very, very – they had an AMAC console right there sitting in front of me, teasing me, but it wasn't operational. The power supply was gone. And um, so – and they also had a Studer A80 staring at me, but once again, they just didn't have the parts to – maintain and replace things so um so we had to make do with very very basic preamps yeah right but very good room very good musicians and very good quality microphones so you know at the end of the day uh you know instead of worrying about geez i wish i had a better preamp or a neve or a this or a that i just had to rely on good placement and uh, and then let the performers do the rest, you know, and uh, and then just set the gains. You couldn't really ride the gains because, unfortunately, every time you'd move a gain pot, it would just crackle like crazy and I'm mm. trying to take all the dust out of them and I'm taking the caps off and see if I can, you know, I didn't have a can of deoxid or anything like that with me. <laughs> um, and well. Or, al or rubbing alcohol or anything that was like isopropyl alcohol. But, yeah, it was just uh, the, it wasn't very well maintained and, you know, constantly having to work around those uh, limitations. But, you know, I think that was probably like a good thing in this regard. And, yeah, to be honest, I just focused more on the, the musicians, you know, and, and that's what's key, I reckon, mm. in, a, in a project like this too. That's where the priorities are. So looking at what most people have in their home studios today, they probably have, would have better quality gear than what you recorded through. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. So, wow. you know, if, if you talk about those focus, right, pre's, I reckon, you know, you could probably get one second hand for 150 bucks these days. If you, if you can even find one. Mm. Uh, That's right. <laughs> it's so old. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, not everyone has a, a, ca a mic cabinet with four U47 FETs, though. That's, so. that's true. That's true, yes. Okay, so that made up for it. That made up for but, it. You know, once you've got the performance and uh, the microphones in the room, then even cheap gear couldn't break it anymore. It was just that's right. amazing, yeah. That's right. As, yeah, long, as, as long as we got a clean signal mm. and, uh, you know, we could capture it uh, without any problems, um, yep. you know, then... That was the key. Do you remember how you gain staged your, your recording signals? Have you got any workflows that you can share with us? How to um, you know, tackle something like such a big recording project? Well, I mean, look, I did have the house technician there who had way more experience than I did in regards to, you know, Cuban 
style recording uh, in that room and and whatnot. Um, and a lot of the times, you know, I I would go over to his name was Alejandro Alex and uh, I'd look at him and I'd say oh what do you normally do in this situation you know and he and I'd be positioning a mic and he goes exactly what you're doing <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know like he was very he was you know we we became very uh good buddies at by the end of it realizing that we just both want the same thing you know we were caring more about the music rather than uh you know how what technique and this and that it was literally you know put the musician in the right spot and if uh if it was too hot you know the first choice was to back off the microphone a little bit you know and and uh and do that rather than you know um worry too much i mean i didn't have dynamics i didn't have eq you know i did in the box in pro tools of course but that's already after it's been captured so so essentially I just worked with mic position and also, you know, if I had a group vocal or um, the horn section, for example, it was just literally, you know, going on the talkback and saying, hey, can you just move your chair back maybe just one foot back, please? And, you know, the trombone player, for example, you know, because he was just a bit louder than everyone else and my gain was set nicely already and I was liking it and I was like, oh, I just feel like he he's overloading the 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 capsule a bit, you know, rather yeah, than yeah, right. the preamp, you know. Mm. So if you just backs off, not so much air hitting that capsule and, and then, you know, it'll probably sound a little bit more natural and rah, rah, rah. And so, yeah, right. So you basically gain stage the horn section with the feet. Yeah, just, yeah. just make them move, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Um, because we had different horn players for different parts and different sections but using the same mics. So, so once they were set, those gains, and I was mm. really happy with them, I'd rather the musician slightly move forward or backwards Um, and I'm talking you know 20 centimeters 30 centimeters you know nothing drastic you know not you're not going to get a direct sounding mic and then all of a sudden a roomy sounding mic you know Mm. (laughs) it was just uh, just small amounts just to sort of balance it out a little bit and make sure the mic wasn't overloading or or, um, I didn't have to do too many drastic changes on the gains just because I didn't have much flexibility there you know so <laughs> and do you remember what microphones you used for the horn section um u47s for u47 yeah right well there the, the trumpet we had the yeah. u89 mm-hmm. so so they had um uh, um i'll share a photo with you actually um you can share with your listeners but uh um, oh cool um, put it in the show notes yeah so i've got mm-hmm. i've got a photo of the mic cabinet and so they had six u89s four u47 fets uh and then a couple other you know, obviously your your Shaws and your your fifty sevens and a couple Sennheisers and whatnot, um, and then Jake brought his U eighty seven, and I brought a little TLM Neumann just in case for whatnot. And um, but yeah, so okay, so with those with those uh, mics, we basically depending on what we were doing that particular day, we utilize the same microphones and just place them somewhere else for a different part very versatile i mean oh know, yeah, yeah those mics uh i mean you can you can put just about anything in front of them and they're, mm. they're going to work you know as long as you place it the right distance and happy days mm, cool so you used mainly condenser microphones in this case yeah right? yeah so for any any um anything other than the drums and the guitar 
for the reamping especially um the everything else was condenser yeah right that that's where you get all that detail and, and the quality and you know the roominess i guess yeah definitely. that's what they're good for yeah definitely do you remember how much distance you left between the the horn section and the mics? I, I find that condensers can be a little bit problematic with with air movement. Yeah, um, depending on the the horn, of course. Like you know, saxophones could could be a little bit closer, mm. less air movement. But the trombone and especially the trumpet, you know, in some cases over a meter, meter, yeah. you know, one point two, one point three meters roughly. Um, and because some of these players, they can. They can blow, man. <laughs> you know, like they're loud. Like yeah. just, just acoustically speaking, you know, I reckon some of the SPL coming out of that trumpet would have been at least 120 dB. If you were a meter away from it, you'd be having ringing ears, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So they'd really hit those big high notes like with full power, you know. Mm. Um, well, so. that's that's what you want, you know. That's where totally. the sound comes from. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Did you use pop filters uh, for those mics? Um, for the vocals, yeah, mm. on on the horns, I think on the sax, if I remember correctly, mm. we'd potentially used one because we were a bit closer to the source. Um, but um, but yeah, mainly the vocals, um, obviously. Uh, yeah. And then yeah, everything else was pretty clean, uh, so it didn't require too much pop filters. Yeah. Okay. So how many musicians did you record at the same time? You said drums, bass, guitar, percussion. So Horn sections, so I'm counting probably something like seven, eight, or uh, the bed tracks. The bed tracks being drums, bass, keys, guitar, percussion. That would have been somewhere in the one, two, three, about about seven to eight musicians mm. at a time for the bed tracks. Well, the horn section mm. was four players at a time and then overdub any solos or or harmonies uh additional harmonies or or just to thicken up certain sections or whatever uh and then vocals one person at a time generally unless there was like mm. a duet or uh yeah or backing a group vocal type thing which we did a few times we did a few group vocal sections um, and that went up to five to six people in a group vocal and sort of did a circular sort of uh, setup in that regard. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, eight, seven to eight people, but at, at any given moment the studio had probably about 15, it was like a party. I'd have Cubans drinking rum behind me, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, right. And, and, and of course, you would never have contributed to that. No, no. <laughs> I, I couldn't actually because my brain felt like it was melting because I was mm. constantly managing the the technical task, of course, of doing yeah. this recording, and, and yeah. I, I was putting so much energy into that, but also constantly having to uh, speak in Spanish and. Now, my parents are from Argentina, so I grew up speaking Spanish at home and I speak um, pretty fluently. Um, but the thing is still English is my main language, you know, mm. I live in Australia. So speaking Spanish still requires a little bit more energy for me yeah, focus, um, yeah. and more focus. But then also just constantly having to communicate between the Jamaican musicians and the Cuban musicians and And also not only just translating something but also communicating what is that musical idea and how do you actually 
you know, sometimes it makes perfect sp- uh, sense in Spanish, but to make it uh, sort of uh, understandable in English or even to a Jamaican um, with their patois and their different culture, it's like trying to, you know, I'd have to sing stuff to them or, or mm. over the talk back, you know, or, or walk into the room and explain to, I, you know, I couldn't believe it, but I was explaining to Sly, and Ro- uh, Sly Dunbar, one of the most experienced drummers, uh, reggae drummers ever, um, that the Cubans were doing a, uh, you know, son clave, which has a bit of a swing to it. So basically, you know, clapping out the clave and saying, no, no, they're not they're not dragging it. It's actually the third beats anticipated and da-da-da-da. <laughs> oh, okay. And sort yeah, of yeah. all those mm. types of little things to, mm. to sort of like, you know, um, yeah, just get that that interface happening between the two musical styles and the cultural styles. So language being one thing, but obviously music's another language. Of course, yeah. And so, yeah, just interfacing that. But 90% of the time it was incredible how much they could just communicate just by playing, mm. you know. They'll just, they'll just, they'll just <laughs> yeah. instead of talking it out, the, the, the Cubans would just play something, you know, and just tap it out in front yeah. of Sly and Sly goes, ah, oh, yeah, man, no worries, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then get back on the kit and then mm. off they went, you know, like uh, it – you know, it didn't require words. <laughs> oh, cool. So, well, that really sounds like you were juggling quite a few different things there. You know, 24 inputs, dodgy or crackly pots. That by itself keeps you busy. And, you know, then managing this many musicians. And I guess your skills from the Melbourne Scout Orchestra probably would have come handy as well to provide foldback or headphone mixes to seven to eight musicians at the same time. 100%. Yeah, that did, did come in handy. <laughs> did they demand separate mixes or were they all in the same? Um, it, they were in groups, yeah. In groups, so yeah. so we'd, we'd have little headphone splitter boxes mm. going to, say, two, two to three musicians. So if you're in the percussion section, they were all happy to be on the one headphone mix. Yeah. Drummer, Sly was on a different mix. Okay. Um, and yeah, so they did. We oh, can't remember exactly how many headphone sends we had available, but um, but yeah, we made it work. We made it work. Mm. Everyone was happy. Okay. And the headphone sends were they all driven from from the uh, digital mixer from from the O2R or out of Pro Tools or? Um, we did it out of Pro Tools, mm. going out of the line outputs to headphone amplifiers. Yeah. So. Okay. And that way, yeah, we could get a few additional mixes that mm. way. Um, and just, yeah, and then on that note, I would put a little bit of processing uh, before it hit their ears. Um, but, you know, being on a HD system, I'll just kept it very minimal, maybe just slight filtering, tiny bit of yeah. dynamics um, and maybe a touch of verb on mm. an aux bus and that was it just not that they needed reverb to be honest there was the room, <laughs> the room tone alone was was enough mm. but um maybe for a vocalist or something like that you know yeah. just to give them a bit of bit of vibe yeah yeah right okay so you had a, a pro tools hd rig there yeah so the, <laughs> funny that uh it was a cracked version of pro tools <laughs> they had the hardware they had the hardware. Nobody say a thing <laughs> i mean it is cuba come on um so i mean look they they just have to be resourceful with mm. whatever they can. And I think for them sometimes, you know, not doing stuff the correct way but still getting a result was, was yeah. more important, you know. Of course. <laughs> um, that's understandable. Um, mm. But, yeah, I mean, look, they had a Leslie, they had a Hammond B3 and a Leslie in there that hasn't 
turned on in seven years, you know, because they haven't oh, got no. they haven't got the right parts to, to and like there were so many of these things where I was like, oh, it just would be great to you know fly over a technician with uh, a, a, a you know a whole shipping container full of parts and just go around Cuba mm. and fix everything for them and leave enough spares. But I mean, yeah, I guess that's a logistical thing that would be hard to do. But yeah, just you know, they can keep their cars going. You know, you got cars mm. in the fifties going, and I guess they can be a bit more. You can you can machine a part or something. You know, yeah, but, yeah, that's uh, right. When it comes to audio gear, you know, replacing a yes. tube or a certain uh, bit of componentry is a, is a little bit more difficult to to source. Yeah, that's right. And it's uh, you don't get the same quantity. You know, who, who needs spare parts for an AMAC console? Yeah. Against who needs a new muffler for a car? That's right. You know, that that makes a difference, I'm sure. Yeah. That's right. What a trip. Uh, how much time did, did it take for you to set it up, to basically go from bumping into the studio, setting everything up, sound check, to actually tracking? Um, first day was oh, probably a good six hours before we started tracking. Um, there was a lot of things that we were managing, not just, you know, the setup. It was, uh, you know, we are in Cuba. Um, the studio had to be paid up front and getting access to a bank and that amount of money wasn't was proving to be a bit difficult. So we had uh, people in, uh, running around different banks um, to try and get um, money out and, and or changing US dollars to Cuban uh, to cooks, which is what they call it, Cuban. Um, Oh, I forgot what it's called, credits, essentially. Um, so so those little difficulties, and I just went in there and luckily because I can speak Spanish and um, I butted up the studio manager uh, enough to allow me to start setting up and I said, look, if he doesn't come to pay for the studio in time, it was, you know, one of those first day teething periods, you know, where, mm. where you're in a different country and it's not a normal you know, country where you can just go to an ATM and or just give them a credit card or anything like that. It just doesn't yeah. work that way in Cuba. So, so essentially, yeah. While that was all being sorted out, I luckily, um, you know, managed to to get everything um, set up, line checked, headphones checked, um, set up a template and Pro Tools, um, got the musicians comfy, dialed in some sounds, um, mainly the Jamaicans too. You know, because. They, you know, obviously it's all new for them being in a different country. Mm. Um, for all of them, it was the first time that they went to Cuba, even though it's like 100 miles away, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like another world for them too. Uh, and, yeah, and, uh, yeah, after about six hours, we finally got music, music down on Pro Tools, you know, and... Uh, and That's quick, yeah. six hours for, for such a big setup. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, we didn't have all the other elements set up at that stage it was just literally the rhythm section so mainly just the drums bass and guitar uh, yeah. at that point so piano wasn't mic'd up or you know all those other elements weren't mic'd up so yeah it was just getting uh, a bit of a rhythm section happening mm. and then as as we went along we just added the other parts that we needed as we went um and then yeah by the end of that day i think we we felt comfortable enough um it wasn't the most productive day. Usually the first day is never the most productive. It's a setup. Um, yeah. But the second day we could come in, fire everything up and, and pretty much get straight stuck into 
uh, tracking. So Oh, that's good. And did the band travel with their own drum set or did you use the house kit there? We used uh, the house kit and uh, it wasn't up to Sly's standard, let's just say, but he is an amazing human being that can make anything sound great. We had to tweak it a fair bit to try and get, uh, the, you know, the kick drum wasn't particularly... You know, it was a it was like a eighteen or nineteen inch kick drum, and usually he plays mm. a twenty two inch kick drum for yeah. for reggae. Yes. So we you know we took the the rezo head off and tried different ways of tuning, and you know sort of try try to get a little bit more out of the kick that we you know we were kind of limited to, mm. and you know once again bit much chunk, yeah, yeah, not much chunk. So once again, we we. Uh, were limited to, to what we could get, you know? Mm. Like, I mean, there's no... McDo, yeah. There's no Billy Hyde's uh, drum hire uh, down the road. There's no, you know, you basically have to borrow from another musician and then, you know, and so the other drummer there, the Cuban drummer, Oliver, had his kit and his kit was amazing, immaculate. And, um, you know, unfortunately on day one I had no idea that the two kits were designated or, or one I thought it was just for the session and it was, we were hiring these two kits. And I, I kind of piecemealed one for Sly out of the two kits that to make it a better kit for Sly. And then when Oliver rocked up, he wasn't too happy about that. So I had to <laughs> apologize profusely and sort of say, you know, you, you don't want to sort of uh, piss off the, uh, the, the musician, especially the locals, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, I had to I had to appease him pretty quickly, but he was very understanding and he un- he could see where we were coming from and yeah. um, and understood, uh, you know. And he was there to help out. And he goes, "Oh, actually, you know what? You can use that floor tom and that snare for." I mean, Sly brought his own snare and and some cymbals, of course, but and his own sticks, of course. Uh, he's got a few things. He doesn't he doesn't use a drum stool. He he sits on his drum case that he brings his snare and other bits on. Oh, really? And that's his thing. <laughs> no way. Even, even on live performances, yep. That uh, sounds uncomfortable. Yeah, but that's that's what he <laughs> likes and it's like his actual case, he sits on it. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, look, we, we made it work and, um, you know, look, you're in, you're in a, a foreign country with limited resources mm. but i think everyone was was uh willing to you know yeah. make it work with what they had you know and yeah, not of course not sort of uh be precious about it all and uh, for a production like this you know how many productive hours do you get out of a day how, how how many hours can you work until everybody sort of drops off a bit and well me personally like we had mm. Uh, the studio for 12 hours a day that when that was strict mm. like they they basically gave us access uh from i think it was 10 a.m to 10 p.m um okay and we did mm. occasionally go over but that 12 hours i was on the whole yeah. time yeah right well and, that, that's good that that they put a cap on yeah good, good for you <laughs> yeah totally totally yeah. um you know it was 12 hours mm. for me but yeah the musicians weren't on for 12 hours because we had mm. rotating roster of musicians yeah. essentially you know yeah. um, sometimes the jamaicans would um take a break uh they'd leave the studio for an hour or two and we'd overdub mm. um some percussion or double bass yep or piano or yeah. whatnot. And so when we're doing those overdubs, uh, they're having a break and then they'd come later that evening after a meal or something mm. and then we'd 
you know, lay down some other tracks. But we, you know, we generally tried to get most of the beds done in the first few days. But of course, as as things developed um, and Jake, the producer, you know, had all these charts and ideas and, and just also allowing the musicians to to come up with their own sort of uh, interpretations and, and bits and pieces. So, you know, we ended up recording, I think it was 25 songs in that seven-day period. Wow. Um, that's very productive. Yeah. Especially with that many musicians. That's right. And, yeah. you know, and I've got to hand it to Jake. He, he did a lot of prep before arriving to Cuba. You know, it was months and months and months of preparation for him um, to have that, you know, in place um, and that plan in place. And, and he had it from the onset, you know, mm. the idea of recording enough for two albums, you know, because even though a lot of uh, additional tracking was required after Cuba, you know, featured yeah. artists, featured vocalists. Yes. Yeah. Um, overdubbing Ernest Ranglin, for example, on one of the songs, uh, his amazing guitar work, um, 420 San Miguel, what a tune. Um, and, you know, so all those overdubs obviously were going to happen later, but, you know, to, to really utilise those days there in Cuba and all these amazing musicians and that mm. space and that room and all those things. It was, it was just an amazing feat to, to get that all done in seven days and, and no one, uh, you know, no one blew a gasket, let's just say. <laughs> everyone, everyone <laughs> yeah, right. loved, I was you know. just about to ask if, if there was friction at any times, you know, but... Uh, oh, definitely, if, there was definitely friction at mm. times, but, you know, that, I think that comes with anything, yeah. especially when you put a lot of people in, in one space um and there's you know different ideas floating about there's always going to be some mm. friction but incredibly it was uh mostly smooth sailing everyone was super happy cool you know and excited about this project you know like it mm. was th there was this spark in the air you know every, it, all the musicians you know no one was yawning and going oh i'm just here to do another take you know yeah. give yeah. me my money and i'm out of here sort of mm. thing no everyone was really invested into mm. the actual Uh, whole idea and, and very passionate about it. So it was, no, that's it was great. great to see. Well, and, you know, the results speak for themselves. So when the first album came out, uh, Havana Meets Kingston Part One, it made a huge, huge splash. It was, you know, internationally, worldwide recognized and had a fair bit of success. So were you involved in the touring afterwards as well? Um, yeah. So luckily uh, Jake um, got me along for for the uh, touring side of things. So the initial tour was in Australia where it was almost identical uh, to the lineup in the studio, not every single musician because we did use many musicians, uh, but it was it was all the core players were there. So we did have Sly and Robbie and Great. Uh, Barbarito Torres, Rolando Luna, the pianist uh, from Buena Vista Social Club and Barbarito from Buena Vista Social Club. Uh, Julito Padron, the trumpet player, amazing trumpet player. Uh, Bo P, the guitarist, rest uh, in peace. Um, and yeah, so we had the core elements from the actual recording for that Australian tour, which was quite, A massive task. I mean, if you think about it, each one of those musicians in their own right uh, have their own releases, have their own 
bands have yeah. their own of course stardom you know? their own schedules so yeah. to align all of this so for a tour logistically yeah. was yeah. was quite a feat to get all those people together um and then also just to keep everyone happy you know because they are they are used to a certain degree of you know um I guess treatment, you know, being their own star in their own right, you know. Mm. So, so it was an all-star band if you think about it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that amazing, but also yeah, tricky to to logistically navigate and uh, you know keep keep it rolling uh, well. But we did it, um, and we got some fantastic, you know, reviews mm. and and accolades from from that tour. Um, and then about a year after that, we did uh, Europe with a slightly different lineup. Um, not everyone being available, and also costs come into play um, and all those things. So, but yeah, the European tour, we still had a lot of those core musicians in there still. Um, no Sly and Robbie, unfortunately. So, we had a different drummer and bass player, but they did an amazing job mm. um, and uh, were, you know, very invested in the project. Um, and so the European tour uh, in 2018 uh, was amazing. And, and one of the highlights for me and a bucket list, I guess, for any sound engineer was to mix a show at the Royal Albert Hall. And, <laughs> yeah, <you> know, <laughs> and, uh, and that was also, you know, televised on BBC uh, and, and recorded. Um, so they did like a little doco kind of intro to it and then the show mm. was, um, was aired, broadcast. So that was that was amazing, you know. That was something that I just walked away from, going, "I can't believe we just did that," you know. And so did wow. the whole band, and yeah. you know, everyone was just massive buzz, you know. <laughs> amazing night, fantastic. And look, by the time this uh, inter interview is published, part two is already out. So it's coming out this Friday. That's right. It's two days from today as we record, but by the time. This episode is out on Tuesday. It's already out. Which one is your favorite song? Oh, geez. <laughs> um, I mean, I did mix uh, the Havana Meets Kingston song with Brendan Navarat as the lead vocalist. So I do enjoy that. <laughs> okay. Uh, cool. That was one of the singles that came out earlier on. Um, I don't know. I, it's it's hard because I, I I'm one of those guys where... I can see the beauty in every song and I know the story behind the song. So mm. something always grabs me about the different song and remember that moment when that person was oh, playing yeah. that part or, you know, or just even on the road, like the conversation I had with one of the musicians, like I, I have a very biased view. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I'd say Havana Meets Kingston mm. um, uh, or, yeah, yeah, probably oh. that one for now. Let's Let's... Let's say for now, for this week. For now. <laughs> <laughs> next, next week will be another tune. <laughs> well, look, uh, I'm sure this record will again uh, make a huge splash and it will be noticed internationally. That's pretty clear to me. The music is just phenomenal. The musicianship is ridiculously beautiful. Um, can you talk about the plans for the future? Is there anything possibly in the pipeline that you are comfortable talking about? Uh, any other tours planned or public appearances of any shape or uh, form? No, not. No, look, to be honest, I'm, I'm sort of becoming a little bit of a hermit at the moment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, I mean, you know, after uh, those years of recording, I mean, I, I did, and I'm not meaning to name drop here, but I have um, 
had the opportunity to record with Angus and Julia Stone and um, and then that's what led into a lot of the touring work too from those guys. Um, but, uh, you know, um, ever since sort of I moved away from, I guess, touring and, and, and recording, I mean, I love recording. I feel mm. like recording to me is kind of like doing a live show in a way. You're, you're, yeah. you're capturing a moment uh, and, and that moment in time will live from that point onwards, you know, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. Um, but I guess, yeah, like my priorities have shifted um, a lot and, and I just, I mean, you know, you can see where we live here and this amazing mm-hmm. just view out here yeah. looking at the mountains. The view is pretty spectacular from your place. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have to say I love just being home and the community around here mm. and I just became more of a, yeah, a, a I like getting into the local community, getting involved with the kids' school. I, I know it sounds a bit daggy, but yeah, I don't know. That's no, just something. I know exactly where you're coming from. I feel the same. <laughs> and, and so, so the, the like my studio downstairs is just about finished. I just finished um, all the construction side of things, and so now it's really just um, you know embellishing it with some nice acoustic treatment. I've got some diffusers in there already. Nice. Um, but, yeah, so I'm going to get some um, absorption panels made up and to size and, okay. you know, uh, get it all done to incrementally because I, I would like to test the room um, as I go rather than just put a whole bunch of acoustic treatment in there mm. and, and hope for the best. So I'm going to do some measurements and, you know, slowly – uh, add to it as as is required, but yeah, I, I, I see where that's going. Yeah, you are a bit of a perfectionist uh, uh, in totally. some ways. <laughs> I've, I've got my Earthworks mm, okay. microphone ready to go, and yeah, uh, right. yeah. Right. And, so know. this studio is going to be operational probably within weeks. Or are we talking still many months? Um, uh, probably a couple months before I'm, mm. I guess, settled in. Let's just say, yeah, um, yeah. So I'm planning to move my gear down there probably within the next few weeks and then start that process okay. of, mm. you know, getting the acoustic treatment done yeah. right. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's going to take a few more months of um, making sure that that's feeling right and, mm. um, and taking measurements, not just, you know, obviously my ears uh, are going to do a lot of the talking, but but I, I always like to confirm what I hear with uh, some proper room measurements. and Yeah, scientific results. I yeah, want yeah. scientific mm. results, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure that where my head is, I'm not getting too much of mm. one thing or the other. But, um, yeah, so that's well, okay. that's been where a lot of my time's been going in. Mm. So I guess from, from, you know, that point of view, uh, and I've been doing a lot of the work myself, I guess, um, it's been enjoyable, but also it's much cheaper doing uh, the labor yourself if you can do it, if you have the capability to. So, and I have, yeah, it's been great um, seeing it come together. I've taken a couple uh, sort of videos, uh, time lapse videos of, you know, the walls going up or the ceilings mm. coming in or the windows getting in and double glazing and this and that. So, yeah, so the, a lot of the energy going there and then. Once I settle in there, I, I hope to, you know, really push for, um, you know, getting some um, of the people that I've been working with in the past to, to come and, you know, ha- hang out and, and, uh, make <laughs> and, let's, and let's make something, you know. But, yeah, um, yeah I mean, potentially some recording too mm-hmm. down there, but, you know, I'm, I'm treating it more as a mixing 
slash project space or, you know, like if if people want to finish writing something or or we we need to work on something, Mm. the arrangement or whatnot, that's that's cool. But uh, I don't want it to be like a a recording studio such. I mean, you could fit a band in there, but it's probably better just to go to somewhere like Rocking Horse or the Music Farm or... Mm you know, using these amazing local studios that we have access to. (laughs) Yeah, they're definitely well fitted for a lot of noise. Totally. Say, if somebody wanted to reach out to you and work with you, uh, how could uh, somebody find you? Have you got a website or social media channels? Um, I do have a website, so it's ericcoelho.com.au, which I just literally finally got done. Um, I've always been a person of word of mouth and uh and then a lot of people go oh can i see some of your work and i'm like send them a link to spotify or apple Mm. music or whatever and it's not the most efficient way to to show them my work um so i I had to grow up and put my big pants on and uh get a website (laughs) website. um so yeah there's that i'm not huge on social media i should probably change that my wife always says eric you should you know you gotta you got to get involved. Um, but, yeah, so, um, but, yeah, definitely my website somewhere you can get in touch and, and see some or hear some of the work that I've done. Mm, um, the amazing work, yeah. Yeah, so I have some links there. But, yeah, mind you, um, I'm, I'm constantly improving on things. And uh, Okay. Yeah. Look, uh, if you're interested in reaching out to Eric and uh, – Maybe just for a chat or who knows, maybe for a mixed-on session or recording session one day. So go to the show notes. I'm going to put the the link there. Just click straight on the link and you'll find him. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, the studio will blow up big time and uh, get you a lot of business and, you know, amazing music made. Thank you, man. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you sharing all of this with us. Um, And everybody, please check out Havana Meets Kingston Part 2, Eric's work. It's phenomenal music. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Jana. Cheers. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Eric. Amazing stuff. Thank you for all your insight into the production and recording of Havana Meets Kingston. If you're new to the podcast, please go to the previous episode, number 45, where we had an interview with Mr. Savona, the producer behind this project. These episodes go really well together and uh, definitely head down to the show notes to follow the link to the Havana Meets Kingston Part 2 album. Uh, Click there, have a listen. It's out now. It's phenomenal. Uh, I just listened to it this morning and it's stunning. Amazing musicianship. Uh, Sounds phenomenal. So definitely worth checking out. You can also check out uh, Eric's website, which is also in the show notes. So if you need anybody to help you out with your sound, Eric is warmly recommended. I've known him for many years and I trust him blindly. You're going to be in very good hands if you work with him. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast and do me a huge favor, please. Uh, Think about all the friends you know and um, I'm pretty sure that you do know some uh, fellow musicians who would benefit from the things we discuss in this podcast. And please do me a big, big favor and pass this podcast on to one or two people that you know and give them a recommendation. Tell them to please tune in and subscribe to this podcast to spread the message. 
this will definitely help me to to keep this podcast going for the long run so thank you very much for your word of mouth i really appreciate this if you ever need any help finishing your projects if you need help mixing you can also reach out to me via mixartist.com.au my website where i offer online mixing services and maybe just um, have a look at the listen section where you can check out my previous work or i also warmly recommend to just read through the reviews that i've received from previous clients to just get a sense of you know what what it would be like so thank you for considering all of this uh, please subscribe please pass the message on and recommend this podcast to all your friends this is all for today i speak to you again next week have a fantastic week bye for now